0: Amen. Thank you, choir. The song was so good. I, we needed to hear that again. I'm glad we got to hear it again. That December 8th wasn't enough. Thank you, Justin and Deborah. Kelly, good to see you back in the choir. Welcome back. Featured soloist on Christmas Eve. Come back and hear Kelly uh, bless us once again with her beautiful soprano voice on Christmas Eve. We are a family of faith, and I, I love what Ed prayed, that we are a family. And this is a great time of year to be with family. So no matter what your situation, whether you're separated or single or, or, or bereaved or whatever the situation may be, I hope that you can experience the warm fellowship and family of faith here at Woodmont Baptist Church today. Christmas Eve service, 5 p.m. on a Tuesday, I invite you back for that special family service as well. We'll have communion uh, up here at the front as family units, and you, that could be The people sitting next to you could be friends or whatever uh, family of faith that that you want to deem as your family for that night. uh, Come and take communion. It's going to be a special time of of worship and and music. And uh, I think it's 50 minutes right now the way Dr. Ayler has it laid out. So it will be short and sweet and get you out to dinner and uh, onto your family celebrations. It's the very best time of year. It really is. I hope you feel that. Um, But it's also a tough time, like Trey said, for a lot of families here. So we've been talking this whole month about waiting on the promise, about these texts and scriptures that talk about anticipating and longing. Oh come, oh come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. It's a cry of waiting for God. So we've been reading these texts, and I don't know about you, but I've I've disclosed to you in my candid nature that I am not a very patient. Person by nature, my fallen flesh um, that wars against my spirit uh, always makes me frustrated in Green Hills traffic. I don't know about you, but I have to navigate that all the time. Uh, it makes me very impatient when my three-year-old says, "Dad, dad, 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 hey, hey, dad, dad." What? What is it? Goodness gracious! Every day at my house, patience is something that is a fruit of the Spirit, and thank God he's not done with me yet. He's still in the process of sanctifying me and making me new from the inside out, so I'm working on it, and he's working on me, more importantly, and as Christians, we are, we're called to behave differently than the rest of the world. We're called to have this fruit of patience that supernaturally is grown up in us, through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the way that we do things is is not how the rest of the world goes about doing things, the way that we sit in traffic, the way that we react when someone cuts us off, the way that we react when someone is rude to us, that we're able to, by God's grace, turn the other cheek. And that includes how we do lots of things, right? Uh, The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we grieve Differently than the world grieves in times of sorrow and sadness. What does that text say? It says, we grieve not as those without hope. Hope is the difference maker. Hope is the reason that we're able to grieve differently. It's also the reason that we're able to wait differently. Because of hope, we wait not as those without hope hope. Advent reminds us that hope changes the way not only that we grieve and how we wait, but it also changes the way that we view our jobs. Hope changes our family dynamics. Hope even changes the way we vote. It changes the way that we serve others. Hope, true Advent hope, changes everything. So today we're going to talk about waiting and, and how we wait with hope, with eager expectation even, about what God is going to do because he is faithful to do it. And because he has come to earth and because he is coming again. That may sound flippant to you. You say, yeah, that's just preacher talk or whatever. But it's true. It's rooted in reality. Advent hope is not false hope. It's very real, tangible hope. We talked last week about how the Bible story of Christmas is not like our social media Christmases. It's not like our Christmas card Christmases. It's not like our Sunday best Christmases. Advent in the Bible is a story filled with fear, filled with danger, filled with high levels of stress and anxiety. you got a murderous king. you got a forced uh, census, a uh, forced trip to Bethlehem. That happens. You got an unexpected pregnancy. You got all kinds of issues going on. In the actual Bible story, it's not all warm, fuzzy sheep and donkeys and babies that you're gonna see Tuesday at our Christmas Eve service. As our children reenact the the Christmas narrative, at least the kids' version of it. (laughs) The reality I know for a lot of you and, and for my family is that there are days that are really hard. That we struggle. I know many people in our church who are struggling not only with the the sin that that so easily entangles, but they're struggling against their own bodies that are breaking down. We were talking about how we had two boilers go out here. Two of our five boilers went out this week. So if you were a little chilly in Sunday school, my apologies. And one of our senior adults said, oh, it's just kind of like us. You know, we're kind of falling apart, too. And (laughs) the building's falling apart. Some of us are struggling Mentally, against minds that that betray us, minds that lead us into uh, depression and and anxiety uh, during these seasons. Many of us are struggling economically, financially. Many of us are struggling with our family dynamics that are so uh, strained during these kind of holidays. And sometimes it it just seems to me and to you, I know that, that Jesus is nowhere to be found in our lives, in our actual reality life. Where is Jesus in it? Where has he gone? Many of you feel like you're just waiting on him to show up because you can't see him at work in your lives. I think that's the reality for many of us who live in this fallen world. And that's exactly what happens in our text for today. We find Jesus missing. It's not a typical Advent story. It is within the bounds of Luke 1 and 2, which is kind of known as the the infant narrative, but it's not about the infancy of Jesus, it's about his boyhood. I think you'll see in this text that God's word assures us that even when it appears in our lives that Jesus has gone missing, we can be assured that he's right where he needs to be. So let's look look at Luke chapter 2. Will you stand, if you're able to, in honor of God's word as I read our text for today? Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Did you hear that, Jude? He was submissive to them. And his mother Treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, there's been a lot of change over this last decade. Many of you are reflecting on this past year and on the past 10 years, even. I've thought a lot about my life over the last 10 years. I've thought a lot about the life of Woodmont Baptist Church. We've seen a lot of change in this church over the last 10 years. And As we dream about 2020 and beyond and what the the 20s will bring in our lives, both corporately and privately, I'm reminded that the last 10 years for, for me and Morgan have really been defined by the biggest change in our life. We've been parents now for a decade. Our oldest turned 10 in August. I remember when, when Brad's kid turned 10, I said, you have a 10-year-old? That seems so old. He's like, yeah, you have like two months, man. You're going to have a 10-year-old. I can't believe it, that for a decade, we've been parents. And I can assure you, we have not always been model parents. There are plenty. I won't speak for Morgan, but uh, there's been plenty of times where I've fallen short as a dad, and we've been reminded of that in several occasions. I'll never forget seven years ago, we took our little toddler To uh, a nice restaurant. You know, May was in a little carrier, so she was fine, but we took, we were on vacation in Naples, Florida. Florida, It's a fancy place. We went to a restaurant. We were sitting outside, so I thought it was okay if we let little squirmy Jude, you know, let him down and just kind of, you know, run around the table. I thought that was fine. You know, not not a bad parenting move. Um, One of the waiters of this restaurant was coming by with a big tray full of expensive cocktails and Our little three-year-old Jude zipped right under his legs. He didn't see him until he tripped over him, actually. And he he tried not to kill my son, which was good. He didn't step on him. So he spun around awkwardly, of course, spilling the entire tray of cocktails, not just on the floor, but onto the well-dressed patrons who were sitting at the table adjacent to us. Morgan and I said, yeah, we'll leave. We'll leave. We're we're going. Just give us the check. You'll take whatever. Here's the money. We're, we're, We're just gonna walk away. We're, we're horrible parents. I'm sorry. Um, everyone looked at us like, what were you doing with that maniac kid? He's you know now very well behaved but uh, at the time he was three you know so you can't really blame him. We all have plenty of those stories and plenty of those moments but I hope that none of us have ever lost a child for three days. Mercy. Here in this text we see that kind of blind panic that only a parent searching for their child could fear. It's the only account in the entire Bible of the boyhood of Jesus in between his infancy and his ministry when he was 30, when he began his public ministry. It's the only story we have when he was in between that phase, and it's fascinating to me. We're going to see in this text the first recorded words of Christ ever spoken. And in this text, we we see this messianic chapter where the messianic cha- age has been brought in starting in Luke chapter one. Where did Luke one begin? In the temple with Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad. Where does Luke two end? In the temple with the boy Jesus. There's something special in the messianic age coming in that centers around the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus is, is 12 years old at this time, which is One year before the traditional bar mitzvah, where a Jewish boy would become a bar mitzvah means a son of the law or a son of the commandment, where he would officially become a full member of the synagogue that he was a part of. And the irony here is is that not only would he, you know, he wasn't waiting to become a son of the law. He was the living embodiment of the law. He was the logos, the word of God that came to earth in the flesh to dwell among us. He was a living mitzvah, a living commandment. And verse 44 here in the the text tells us that Mary and Joseph supposed that Jesus was in the group. What does the word for group mean? It's a traveling party. It's a caravan. There were likely many Jewish pilgrims that lived in Galilee and in Nazareth that would journey together for safety reasons. Going through uh, hostile territory in Samaria, it was good to have numbers. As they would make their way to Jerusalem, it was about 90 miles, 90 miles by foot or so to Jerusalem. And Caravans not only provided safety, but it also was a time of corporate worship. As they would go up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's on a hill. If you've ever been there, you know it's uphill. All roads lead up to Jerusalem. They would sing. They would sing what we know as Psalm 120 to 134, these 15 little psalms that were were a little hymn book called the Psalms of, anybody know? Ascent. Ascent, very nice. Nathan Burbank, he's Did y'all arrange that offertory, by the way? No. No? That was amazing. That was really well done. That was incredible we're so blessed to have not only such godly and wise musicians but talented as well so they would sing the psalms of ascent in these caravans as they would travel together and as the caravan approached the city gates of jerusalem it was like you know when you anybody ever been to disney world man to watch your kids faces we've never been with our kids but i've been as a kid and when you approach those gates to the park it's like magic it's just magic That's how it was for these Jewish pilgrims. As they approached the city gates and they began to see the sights and smell the smells and hear the sounds of the festival of Passover, it was a magical time for them. And scholars think that over 200,000 worshipers would gather in Jerusalem for the Passover festival each year. It was electrifying to see all the vendors on the streets selling animals to be brought to sacrifice at the temple. And the temple itself was was nuts. It was so busy. Usually only one division of priests, about 12 priests would work at a time. But on Passover, 24 divisions, hundreds of Levites would be there lined up in the temple to receive the sacrificial lambs for the Passover meal. They would follow this liturgy, every lamb that was brought would be slaughtered and the blood would be sprinkled on the altar as a symbol of God's atoning work of the Passover lamb who caused death to pass over the firstborn sons of Israel. And after each lamb had been slaughtered, the the father would would sling the lamb, the, the, the cleaned and dressed lamb over his shoulders and carry it back to the home they were staying in to prepare the Passover feast. And all over the city at sundown, in all the homes across Jerusalem, all these families and guests would gather together to celebrate the Passover meal in a a powerful time of worship and remembrance. They would follow this this liturgy of hand washing and bitter herbs and, and roasted lamb and all these psalms, the halal songs, psalms that they would sing. And at the end of the meal, the the firstborn son, maybe even Jesus himself, would have the honor of asking the the father of the household, why is this night any different from other nights? And the father would reply with a, a powerful retelling of the Passover narrative where God's people were delivered from death and delivered from bondage in Egypt The next morning was simply day two. The the party was just starting. It was a week-long festival and celebration as the pilgrims would stay put in the city celebrating and worshiping together all week long. And young Jesus clearly understood the the magnitude of it all here. He was in the holy capital city of, of God's chosen people, gathered all these people around to sing praises to his Father, to the Lord God Almighty, praises that Jesus had actually inspired from thousands of years before, because the Passover lamb was only a a picture of what was to come in the Christ child. And they were celebrating God's miraculous and powerful deliverance out of Egypt, but they had no idea that the ultimate rescuer had come to Passover that year. And dwelt among them in their very city. And the week probably flew by for Jesus. He was loving it. He was engaging with people who just studied God's word all day, all these rabbis and scribes and legal experts, and he was able to talk about God's word with them in in meaningful ways. And he couldn't get enough, apparently, because verse 43 says that when the feast was over, after the end of the week, as they were returning, the caravan had departed, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Excuse me. Before we, you know, call child services on Joseph and Mary for being neglectful, let's remember there's a lot of issues happening here. When the caravans would depart Jerusalem and and head back home, the women and the young children would walk up at the front and the fathers and the older children would would walk in the back. And Jesus is in that weird preteen kind of phase. So I'm sure Joseph thought he was up front with Mary. I'm sure Mary thought... He was in the back with Joseph. And let's also consider that Jesus wasn't exactly what you would call a problem child. He was pretty much perfect. Actually, he was literally perfect. And I'm sure they weren't worried about him uh, not being where he wasn't supposed to be. If it had been Isaiah, my son, we would know exactly where he was. You have to keep an eye on him at all times. So, for Jesus, was he being some kind of willful disobedience here? No, of course not. The the Bible affirms multiple times that Jesus was without sin his whole life. He was therefore the spotless lamb. The explanation is that he was being obedient to a higher authority. It wasn't his fault that his parents assumed that he was in the caravan, part of the group, like verse 44 says so they went for a day's journey about 20 miles, most scholars say, before they realize he's not in the caravan. He didn't make it in the group. And I can't imagine the very real panic, the the very real fear, the shame that they felt. We're terrible parents. We left our son. It's kind of a home alone moment. I can't imagine going a whole day's journey back. I'm sure they were running for 20 miles to get back to Jerusalem and then they spent a whole day a third day searching in Jerusalem for their son until they finally found him look at verse 46 after 3 days a day traveling there a tra- day traveling back and a day looking for him they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions Jesus asking the teachers questions i find that amazing all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Not only was Jesus okay, but he was hanging out. Uh, apparently, he was in the outer courts because Joseph and Mary were allowed to go there. Only men could go to the, the inner court of the Jews. He's in the, the outer porticoes of the temple debating the scriptures with these scholars of Jerusalem. And the, the questions that he asked were so full of insight and divine understanding that the teachers were just blown away by this kid. He gave answers to their questions that absolutely just blew their minds. How could a 12-year-old boy, not just any boy, but the son of a carpenter from Nazareth of all places, can anything good come from Nazareth? Remember Nathaniel's question. How could he be stumping the scholars of Nazareth? How could he have this kind of profound insight and understanding into God's word? Little did the scribes and scholars know, what they had among them, this child who sat before them in the temple, was himself the new temple. The dwelling place of God had now become a person, Emmanuel, as the choir sang a minute ago, God with us. The true dwelling place of God with humankind had arrived in Jerusalem. So when Joseph and Mary stumble into the the temple and they find their beloved son there, Mary does what any mother would do. She gives him a stern talking to. Look at verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? A little passive aggressive. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. That's true. The, the word in, in Greek for we're, we've been searching for you in great distress literally says we've been searching for you, suffering pain. It's been painful. It's, it sounds like she's accusing Jesus. Why have you done this to us? She's accusing Jesus of sinning, of, of being disobedient. But, but Jesus here in his first ever spoken words that we have in scripture, ask her a gentle question to help her understand what what really is happening. He asked her, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Even at age 12, Jesus knew he was the son of the living God. And referring to almighty God as father, that, that wasn't done. That wasn't part of the Hebrew vernacular of the time. Jesus is implying this special kind of intimacy that connects him and God the Father in a way that no human on earth before or since had ever been a part of. We've learned from our Lord Jesus to address God in this way now when we pray, our Father who art in heaven. But this is only, the only reason we can pray in that way is because of our Lord's connection to God the Father, and our connection to Jesus as our Savior. 18 years after this moment in Jesus's life, when his public ministry began, Jesus would exclusively refer to God as Father, and not just Father, but Abba, Dad. It's an intimate way to refer to God. One year before Jesus would become a A bar mitzvah, a son of the law. He was letting us know he was already the son of God. But Mary and Joseph didn't get it. Look at verse 50. They didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. They just assumed that Jesus would rather hang out in the temple where he could talk about God's word than join the caravan like he was supposed to to go back to Nazareth. They didn't understand that Jesus is at home in God's house because it's his house he's he's in the center of God's presence and God's will for his people Israel and for the world and yet as as part of Jesus's condescension to us Jesus chooses to go home with them and to obey and to submit to them his less than perfect parents Verse 51 says, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up, what an intimate thing that Luke tells us. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. The son of God, submissive to earthly parents. It's a sign not only of his moral perfection and sinlessness, but of his willingness to give up his own Power and dominion and authority to obey his earthly parents just like we were taught as kids. What's the result of his earthly obedience and his sinlessness? Look at verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. The word for favor here is charis, which means grace also. Jesus grew in grace. There's a maturation that takes place in his life, in the fullness of his grace. He grew in stature. That means he grew in grace physically. He grew in wisdom. That means he grew in grace mentally. He grew in f- favor with humans. He had grace in his relationships with people, and he grew spiritually. Grace in his relationship with God. Favor with God. Grace with his Father. There's a lesson here for us. If we will have an obedient, submissive inner spirit, we too can experience this kind of holistic maturation, this growth in grace. When we do what Romans 12:1 says, right? Offer our bodies as living sacrifices, all that we are on the altar to the Lord and say, this is all yours, God. It's then that we find grace, we find favor with God. And then through our vertical obedience and being right with God, then we increase in the the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the impulse to do what Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Favor with God and favor with people. But you may be thinking, that was Jesus. I can't, I can't relate to that. I'm not the son of God. I can't possibly live up to that standard. I'm just a human who messes up every day. I relate more to Joseph and Mary who lost their kid for three days. That sounds more like me. That seems more like a typical day in my life, honestly. Maybe you're here today and you, you not only feel like a, a bad parent or a, a terrible sinner, but maybe you feel like Jesus has not shown up in your life for a long time. Maybe you're on the the road of your life and you realize that Jesus really isn't a part of it. Maybe you, you realize that Jesus is nowhere to be found. If maybe you're waiting for him to show up, maybe you're hoping that he'll turn up somewhere along the way that you go. If that's you today, I would advise you to do what Mary and Joseph did. Leave the group that you're traveling with Stop going in the direction that you're going and go back to where you last saw Jesus. He's faithful to do what he's supposed to be doing. You can count on that. It's not Jesus who left, it's us who've packed up and gone our own way. But Jesus remains faithful. In this morning's devotion, in Paul David Tripp's book, Come Let Us Adore Him, Tripp mentions the fact that Jesus' incarnation proves that he is faithful and that he will be faithful to do what he says he'll do. We can trust that all of God's promises are yes and amen because Jesus came to earth. He quotes Romans 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When it seems like God has abandoned us or forgotten us or forgotten his own promises to us, when it seems like Jesus has left or become disobedient and run away from us, It's good to reflect on the reality of these verses. Tripp puts it this way, what sense would it make for God to go to the extent of sending his son to be born for our sake and then to abandon us along the way? Since God was willing to make such a huge investment in his grace, isn't it logical to believe that he will continue to invest in his grace until that grace has finished its work. He who promised is faithful. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. The advent of Jesus is our guarantee that the promise is true. The advent of Christ gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Great is God's faithfulness. Tripp says that past grace is our guarantee of present grace and all the future graces that we'll ever need. At the very center of the guarantee is the promise of God's eternal love. As Frank and Betty lit the love candle today, we're reminded that God sent his son to us. Why? Because he loves us. His Son now lives within us. Why? Because He loves us. And we can live with Him now forever because God loves us. As we celebrate the birth of Jesus, let's celebrate the unthinkable love, the unbreakable love that His birth guarantees us. An obedient, humble Savior fulfills God's promise still. Of love and grace and favor to us today and forevermore. Are you waiting today? Are you waiting on the promise of Christmas? He is faithful. Are you waiting for Jesus to show up in your life? He's right on time, and he's right where he needs to be, and he knows where you are. Return to him today. Are you waiting for an Advent miracle He has done it before, and he will do it again. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, all of your promises are yes and amen. We thank you that your faithfulness never wavers, never changes, that it's always, always right on time. God, forgive us for for packing up and going our own way time and time again. We, we wonder where you've gone, but it's, it's us who've gone. God, I pray that today we would return to you with all of our hearts. We believe that your ways are best. We believe that in you there is joy everlasting. There are promises that are true. God, I pray that you would remind us that Advent gives us that hope that you are faithful. That you're right on time and you're right where you need to be. Help us to get on the same page. Help us to reconnect with what you're up to. God, in the busyness of the next few days, let us not lose sight of the Savior whose advent among us is the reason for our hope. God, I pray that we would experience times of great worship, that we would just be in awe of your word as we pray, as we spend time with family and friends, that you would remind us that you are faithful. We love you. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you're here today, you've never received that gift of forgiveness that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you to come forward in this invitation time now and surrender all that you are as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing in his sight. If maybe you've never been baptized and you say, this is the time I need to come forward and say, I'm ready to be baptized. Whatever decision it is that you need to make today, maybe you wanna join Woodmont Baptist Church and be a part of our family of faith. Let me tell you, every family has its issues and we're not a perfect church. If you find a perfect church, let me know um, because I'm pretty sure any church with people in it and with a person for a pastor is is not gonna be a perfect church, but we are on a journey together and I'm excited to see where the Lord leads us in 2020 and beyond. If today's the day that you want to join this church, then come forward now. Whatever it is you need to do in this time, let's stand and sing our hymn of response. Maybe you're going to pray with somebody. I invite Trey to come up here. I invite Morgan to she'll come up here too as well. If you want to pray with one of these prayer warriors, they'll be here. Let's sing, what child is this who lays to rest here before us today?